Hello, and welcome to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, all those who keep heritage alive at the community level. I'm Dale Jarvis, and today's guest is Dennis Flynn. Dennis is a freelance writer, photographer, storyteller, and a native of Collier's, Conception Bay, Newfoundland. In 2003, he received a National Writing Award of Excellence from the Canadian Community Newspapers Association. His photographs and articles have been featured in various museums, magazines, books, newspapers, websites, and other publications. Dennis enjoys gathering and sharing stories and images that celebrate Newfoundland and Labrador's unique people, unusual places, particular insights, and local humor. He's a fabulous storyteller, and I'm delighted to have you on the show. Well, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much. Welcome. Um, we were just having a chat before we were spinning a yarn, before we even got started, and you were telling me a story about a giant squid. So I figured, well, where else would we want to start when we're talking about storytelling in, in Newfoundland and with a, a tale of a giant squid? Well, absolutely. And the, the funny thing about it, it's actually a true story. Um, all, all your stories are true. Well, uh, yeah, they're truthful, as Ted Russell <laughs> would say, right? There's, yeah. uh, there's an element of truth to them. This one actually is true. Um, and it's, it's short and brief. Uh, one of my colleagues called me up as, you know, it's small towns, it's really interesting. We're very fortunate that once people know you're interested in photography and stories and things of this nature, they'll often contact you out of the blue and say, hey, I've got uh, something you should check out. And one of my friends called me up in uh, December of 2004, late night, uh, you know, about 10, 30, 11 o'clock. And uh, he said, there's a giant squid in the beach down the road from you and Collier's. And... Uh, I reacted as any sane person would. I called him something inappropriate and hung up. And uh, he called back a moment later and said, no, really, there is a giant squid in the beach down the road from you. And uh, I called him something else inappropriate and, and hung up again. And uh, I guess like the third time was the charm. The guy called back. He said, honest to God, there's a giant squid. And I start to see the cars going down. So sure enough, we go down. And lo and behold, down by the red rock in Collier's giant squid, 18-foot, we later learned out, female giant squid. Washed up. Yeah. One of the rarest creatures in the world, Architutus Dukes. You know, it's things of legend, the Kraken, as you'd have on yeah, that storytelling yeah. festival yeah. Uh, site. So, but what was really funny about this, I mean, obviously, uh, the media got wind of it a little bit, and, and some people came and, and, you know, preserved the specimen and that. But it would have washed out, uh, only for, there was this old guy, Jimmy Conley. He's gone now, and he had a real strong accent. He could never say Flynn. He'd always call us Fling. You know, I was young Fling, because I was, you know, my dad was Mr. Fling, I'm young Fling. And he said, you know, I was asking about it, Jimmy, you know, how'd you find it? You know, how'd you find it? Or what was your reaction to this giant squid? I mean, it's, they're never seen. Well, obviously, Newfoundland is really fortunate because we do have some of the most sightings of giant yeah, squid in the world, right? Yeah, very true. Uh, with Dr. Fred Aldridge and all yeah, his projects. Long history back, of it, yeah. Long history of it. But uh, Jimmy said, boy, he said, I was dodging along the road and I looked down the beach and I said, I knew right away what it was big squid. I said, you go down and have a look at it? He said, nah, I could see it fine from the road. <laughs> so I seen the big things, the tentacles. That's all I needed. Yeah. <laughs> that was it. You know, and he just went down, he told somebody else, shared the story, they realized the importance of it, and they went and basically, uh, you know, passed it on to me, right? So I took a few shots of it and got the GPS coordinates and, you know, passed it along to Nature Newfoundland and things of this nature. But that's, that's the thing with Newfoundland. You never know. If you're just interested in stories and interested in photographs, what's going to wash up in your backyard? Yeah, I was I was out for lunch not that long ago, and there was an older gentleman that I I knew, and I went over, so I went over to say hello, yeah. and he introduced me to the fellow that he was with, who was from Bergio, and I said, oh, I know someone from Bergio, and yeah. we, we got chatting, talking, and he said, and then uh, he this man who has never met me before doesn't yeah. know me from Adam launches into the story, and he says. 
This one time when I was a smuggler, we were we were running booze out of uh, Saint Pierre. He launches into this smuggling story. Wonderful, right? like, and that's that's one of the great things about this this province is that absolutely. every every time you turn around, someone's telling you a story. Absolutely, it it is absolutely spectacular. Um, and speaking of Burgio, I went to Burgio, uh, cycled around the, the compass points in Newfoundland. So I started at Carapuna Island and uh, went on down the Cape End Wheel. And when I got to the south coast, I started in Rose Blanche and went all the way along Burgio, La um, Grand Bret. That's it's been resettled now. We got out to Ramia, and um, you know, I was standing around, and sometimes you look at these stories, and you're wondering, you know, you're, there's things that are happening that you're not privy to. Yeah. Um, and I'm standing around, and out of nowhere, a guy comes out with a goods wheel, uh, what we call the goods wheel, at a, at a garden party or at a regatta, just a spinning wheel, and he lays it on a table. No prizes. People just mysteriously come out of nowhere. They stand <laughs> around. Money is exchanged. They give out pieces of paper about the size of Monopoly money in the same color with, with just a number on it spin the wheel somebody goes holds up they won something and then no, nothing's exchanged and I'm thinking it's like the twilight zone I don't know what's on the go and finally I got to go over and ask after three or four iterations of this I said what's on the go and the lady said it's the lobster raffle I said the lobster raffle and she said yeah she said, if you win the prize you, the money goes to charity and you win a co- two lobsters I said, where are the lobsters? And she sucked me in pretty good. She said, they're in the water. Where else would they be? <laughs> the fishermen would catch the lobsters, bring them in, and they would uh, you know, give them to you at the end of the day. Yeah. So uh, I, uh, I tormented her. I spent all my change trying to win these lobsters. And she said, you know, I said, if I catch them all, if I win, I'll release them. You know, catch and release for lobsters. I said, oh, my God, my son, don't do that. You come back to the house. I'll cook them up for you. <laughs> Only in Newfoundland does yeah, this happen, right? Yeah. It's fabulous stuff. Yeah. So grow, growing up um, mm-hmm. in Colliers, yep. w- you know, was storytelling an important part of your childhood? It, it truly was. It was. Um, there was very little entertainment. Uh, we were on the Poverty Czars tour. There was only two channels on TV, and we didn't get those till relatively late, <laughs> you know, uh, in my life. Um, so it was one of those things where people, uh, you know, as in many places in Newfoundland, although we weren't too far from St. John's, um, the ability to entertain oneself was very uh, was very important, and uh, my dad was a bit musical, could play a few things, but I never inherited that that particular talent. But my grandfathers, both on both sides, apparently were very good storytellers, and uh, so I've always had an interest into it. And you'd be kind of hanging around the periphery of when the older gentlemen would be, you know, having having a, a sociable or a cup of tea or something of that nature and listening to their stories. So who were your grandparents? Who were your grandfather? Yeah, sure. My, well, my grandfather was a gentleman named John Francis Flynn, and he was uh, a carpenter. He had a great, he had a great repertoire of stories. He um, had some very near misses, and one of them uh, ties into Belle Island. Uh, he worked on Belle Island, as, as did a lot of men, um, and he would travel back to Collier's. Um, in, in, in the winter, they would, uh, rather than uh, have to, you know, just try to spend the money on... Uh, a ferry across or the train from, to Holyrood and so things of this nature, uh, what they would do when when the ice got solid enough, and it didn't have to be too terribly solid because they were used to being out doing other things on the ice, they would walk across uh, from, from Bell Island to Colliers, and there's this place called Flint's Point, so he would literally just walk right into his backyard almost. Um, one time he was coming across, the uh, ice broke up, and he had to hunker down on a pan of ice, a burgy bit, overnight. They thought he was dead, so he uh, he didn't show up. He was supposed to show up like Friday evening. Didn't show up until uh, late Saturday. Uh, he came ashore down in uh, Bacon Cove, had to walk overland. And, you know, for most people, that would be the end of that, no more ice walking. But come Sunday evening, when he had a family to feed, he went down on the point and stepped off and walked back again. Right? So um, they're adventurous sorts. Um, but you did what you had to do. It wasn't an uncommon thing, you know. I guess mm-hmm. people were, were were hardier. But those, when you hear those kind of stories, you kind of it gives you an instant 
uh, connection to places. So when you go to Belle Isle and you go down to the Greaves Nest or you go on a tour of the mines and these, these type of things, you instantly, you can, it doesn't take too much imagination to see your grandfather or other similar people yeah. doing these things. And what about your grandfather on the other side? Yeah, he was a fabulous guy. He was a, he was a real social guy. He was a farmer, uh, raised sheep, things like that. Uh, ended up getting his, his hand shears, so it was kind of a neat little uh, continuity there. Um, he had uh, he had great stories from you know of, uh, of Irish. They were both of Irish extraction, so they uh, you know they kind of had that little bit of superstition into them, like yeah, yeah. and fairies and ghosts. And um, in Colliers, we did the wren, so that came would have came from my grandfather uh, Flynn. Yeah, that was a big thing there. It still carried on a little bit. Played people like Will Murphy and those guys. Uh, so so m- maybe for people who don't know what the wren is, uh, give us a little introduction because we, we could have we could talk for hours just about the wren. Yeah, the wren is fabulous, and uh, um, well, they, if they want to find more about the wren, I highly recommend the book by Dale Jarvis on mummering and visiting <laughs> where you can read stories from Dennis Quinn. Well, yeah. there you go. Absolutely. It's a mutual admiration society. Uh, so you have a wonderful chapter in there on the red um, in, in your book. Um, and, it, you know, it's it was an, a visiting custom at Christmas. So it would take place uh, traditionally on uh, December 26th, uh, Boxing Day. Uh, we always call it St. Stephen's, Stephen's Day. Day yeah. yeah. And uh, we'd go around with uh, an effigy of a bird. Uh, for our cases, it was mostly like a little hand-drawn effigy. I still have some wren sticks from back in the day. I got one from when I was about 10. Um, and you, you would present yourself and knock on the door, uh, ask admission, and gather money for the funeral of said bird. And most people would give you either a few cents or uh, you know, a bit of Christmas cake or a bit of clingy um, syrup, purity syrup, things of that nature. Um, we probably did it from more about 10 to 14, 14, 15. After that, we discovered uh, girls and um, you know, did other distractions, and that was the end of the And day. what was the rhyme? The rhyme, yeah, sure. So it goes, um, there's, there's a couple of versions. There's a long version that um, Will Murphy and those guys do, which is basically the, the, the Clancy version, the Clancy Brothers yes, version. Yeah. Um, the one we did was uh, the Wren, the Wren, the King of All Birds, St. Stephen's Day, he got caught in the furs. Although he was little, his honor was great. Rise up, kind lady, and give us a treat. Up with the kettle and down with the pan and give us a penny to bury the Wren. A pocket full of money and a cellar full of beer. We wish you all a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And if you were... You know, feeling um, prolific, or you're feeling uh, a little more uh, theatrical. You you might embellish that a little bit with you know some some more ears of singing and that. But we 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 didn't have much talent. We just we we saw the money and we thought that was that was great. And, we, and but what's interesting, it it does survive today. And we still there's a few people who still go around. But now we don't actually collect money per se. It might take a box of symbolically. You might and you'll have a cup of tea or sure, whatever. Yeah. And and you're mostly going to visit the older folks. And it's just an excuse to go yeah. see people. And it's one of the few communities in, in Newfoundland that where the tradition has has stayed alive. It, it has. I was yeah. actually thinking about putting it on your map. Another wonderful project you're doing of, of endangered cultural yeah. traditions. I should, you know, I should. Probably, I haven't got around to that yet, but I'll make a note to do it. Yeah, that. the Wren, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and you know, communities have there are all these little things that make communities unique. And we we talk a lot about. Um, Newfoundland culture, as if there's one kind of unifying Newfoundland culture. And I think there are things that we have in common. Yep. But every community has their own stories and their own little traditions. Absolutely. And another thing that was really interesting, um, something I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to do at some point, um, uh, there's variations of songs that are down in, in Colliers, and there are little uh, snippets of things that, again, uh, they're different yeah. from, from the other areas. You can go one or two down and they haven't heard of either, haven't heard of this particular song or this particular story um, or they have it and it's uh, a different ear so people kind of made to put put their own music to things to help them remember it there's a couple there's one called many a tall and gallant ship and you see variations of this all the time but not the one they sang in colliers or not the, the same tune to it 
Um, no doubt they just borrowed it from something else they heard years ago. There's another one, The Babes of the Woods, and um, that one's, uh, again, they, people put it to music. And they also would um, sometimes take poems that were popular, like The High Women. There's a great recorded version of The High Women um, by Alfred Noyes, a real um, lyrical poem. And the version had that in Collier's is just, it's haunting, it's beautiful, but it's totally different than what you hear Lorena McKenna do with a harp and, yeah, yeah. you know, yada, yada, yeah. yada, right? Yeah. So it was more, yeah. so, so you grew up in this tradition of, you know, kind of being around stories and people telling stories in your yeah. family and in the community. When did you, uh, when did you decide you were going to start writing some of this stuff down? Uh, absolutely. Well, um, I tell you what really prompted me um, was um, I, I'd hear all these things and, uh, and you just take them for granted, you know, it was just something. Um, but you were so busy with your own own things, and as as older people started to go away, people would say to me, you know, you should have talked to him, or you should have wrote something down from him uh, or her. And uh, one particular, I think the first story I wrote that got published was a little article for the Compass about about two thousand um, two thousand and one, I think, and um, no, two, yeah, two thousand, and it was um, on the Hindenburg. So both my grandmothers had seen the Hindenburg flyover. Yeah, right, and. Uh, I know one of them had died early, the other one was still alive, so I said, I'll go down and have a chat with her. And then when I talked to her, I realized, my goodness, there was still quite a, at that point, I guess I was talking about 1999, there were still quite a few people there who were, uh, were alive, who had remembered it. Um, so I just got their stories and put it together as a little piece and uh, went down to the old colonial building and someone told me the photograph existed and I you know, went and got, found it and got the permissions to use it and of uh, the Hindenburg over the churches in Brigus. Uh, was taken from the deck of the Morrissey, apparently, because I guess Captain Bartlett and those and his crew had. It's interesting, you know, uh, how these interconnections in history. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, Bartlett had, would have had the photographic equipment as being an explorer. This happens to fly over. He's the guy who takes the picture, you know, or if not him, one of his crew members who had access to the photographic equipment allegedly took the picture. Um, I went back afterwards, uh, I guess la- maybe two or three years ago, to d- revisit the Hindenburg story. It, it got some press again, and I said, I'll go back now and I'll, I'll talk to everybody I talked to at that point. They were all gone. Yeah. They were all dead. There was one guy still left alive, and somebody had loaned me some mail that had actually been carried on Hindenburg with a special postmark of Hindenburg. And I put this in this old gentleman's hand, and you, know, you could see him in the tears come in his eyes. But he said, I remember exactly what I was doing when the Hindenburg went over. Most people sort of said, well, I was, I think I was getting a bit of wood or I was doing, you know, whatever. And he, said, and he told me, you know, dead on, Jack Curley of Bay Roberts in the 90s at the time. He said, he said, no, my son, I said, I know exactly what I was doing. He said, I said, really? He said, yeah. He said, yeah, she come over the west, she come over, you know, over to Greenpoint and Portagrave, and so we seen the big swastika on her, so we thought we was being invaded. <laughs> and, you know, because it was, it was tense times. Hitler was coming to power in Europe. These guys, they really thought it was, you know, it was an invasion. It was, they didn't know what it was, right? But they didn't know what it was, but it didn't look good, whatever it was, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, I said, Jack, how do you remember everything about it so much? He said, in that day when you were pallbearer, uh, you had to go fill in the grave. That was part of your duties. And he said, I was filling in the grave for a young girl about 14 who died. He said, I was just putting the last shovel of earth on her when the Hindenburg come. It, amazing, hey? Yeah. Yeah. So you're, you're, you're short and curly here on the back of your neck, stood <laughs> up a little bit when you, when you sing, you know, and you could see him looking back, and you could see the, 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 the lights, you know, the movie playing in his eyes, you know. Yeah. Um, another great story there. I get, you're familiar with the, um, I'll tell you one more, Bay Roberts, um, and I got a great one of, um, of an old lady here in, in 
in St. John's, I'll tell you as well if, you, if we have time. Yeah. Yeah. So the one more at Bay Roberts, you know um, the island there, you're a kayaker. Fergus, Fergus Island. Fergus island. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So named after the Scottish. Yeah, down Archie. towards Mad Rock. Yeah. Down towards Mad Rock. And it looks remarkably like a, a Newfoundland dog. A Newfoundland dog. Yeah, so you look at it from the right angle. You look yeah. at it from the right angle, yeah. you know. And, uh, um, and, and if you go out, so if you leave there, Max Beach is very close to this, the Red Fisherman Shed. And yeah. I've got to give a plug to the uh, Bay Roberts uh, Cultural Heritage Foundation and all the wonderful work yeah, they, they do, do out there. Work. Yeah. Fabulous preserving stories and uh, they have these old time old fashioned concerts that I go out to MC and I've seen you perform at them as well and uh, just a great great group and um, you know hats off to all those people who do these things but there's an old gentleman I was doing a story on old timey hockey you know um, and I went to see a gentleman in Bay Roberts and he had a the serendipity of, of narrative, you know, and the serendipity of stories. You know, he had a picture, a beautiful picture of Fergus Island with a rainbow over it. And I just commented as I was putting my boots on at the end of my story, or at the end of my interview with him. And uh, I said, lovely shot of Fergus Island, sir. And he said, yeah, he says, nice and told me who will give it to me in that. And I said, I guess you must have spent a bit of time down at the island, you know, and to have this prominently displayed in your home. It kind of, something spoke to me about it. And he said, uh, he said, oh, yes, he said, Roger Lutz. He said, I got a great story of the island for you. And uh, I said, hang on. And I turned around and took my call. I said, you, you really? I said, yeah. <laughs> I didn't even know what it was, but this guy, he was so you good knew, with these sports gonna, stories. You knew you were getting a good story, yeah. Gotta have, yeah. So he said, uh, there was a fellow, I think it was Uncle Tom Badcock. And Uncle Tom Badcock was out checking his trawl uh, in 1942, fall of the year. And he had a young boy aboard with him. And they went around. They, they went out towards Fergus Island. There's a big sea stack called the Lantern. And there's a spot called Beachy Cove. It's right between the dog's paws. It's the only place you can land on the island. And he said they went around the back of the island, and it was wartime, so it was blackout. They were going before dawn. No lights on in Bay Roberts. The only other spot you could see over there would be Port of Grave, the Green Point. Nobody living there at that point. It was all isolated. He said it was that dark you could hide the Great Eastern behind the island, which right. is the ship that laid the cable. Ship, Giant ship. Giant ship. So, yeah, you, if something was hiding there, you'd never see it. So when they poked their nose around with their little putt-putt boat, a little, uh, I guess, make-and-break engine, there it was sitting on the top of the water, German U-boat, probably charging up our batteries. And the old man had enough sense. He said, for the love of Jesus, don't look at it, don't look at it. They poked their nose in towards their trawl and went about their business. And the young fellow was you know, trying to get his attention to take off. He said, we can't leave. He said, pretend you don't see it. He knew they'd be... He figured they'd be shot or they'd be run over or whatever. They'd be killed. I mean, no good consequences would come of letting them know you saw them. They went about their business and they moved to the next position and eventually they said that the U-boat sunk down the periscope depth and watched them for a little while and went on. And when it left, the young fellow said, we'll beat her back across. And he said, no, we can't. we got to go back slow. So how much tension must it have been mm-hmm. to go back across that harbor slow as you could at normal speed but in a, in a rush in your mind wondering when she was going to come back and get you or if she was going to come back. Apparently they reported to the authorities but it was, it was gone. Um... They only found out after that the night before, uh, two iron ore carriers had been sunk on Bell Island. So they figure it was the U-boat charging her batteries to go on. Right. Um, now, whether that was true or not, they told it was true. Yeah. Right? So the, but what, the, what the certainly was true was that there were two separate uh, incidents on Bell Island in the, in the fall of 1942, um, and uh, 69 men were killed. Um, there was a Lord Strathcona, the Rose Castle, the PLM-27, and the Saganaga. Um, and you know, I've been over. I've been fortunate. I've been over in a scuba dive through the torpedo hole on, mm-hmm. on, a, on one of the vessels. So again, it's it's just this continuity of things. It, they, you have you develop um, an affinity for places and for stories. And uh, and once people know about it, they just 
receptive ear. It's one of those places people just share them with you. One of the, one of the stories I wanted you to to tell me. We were talking about Bay Roberts. Yep. I, I ran into you a while back in, yep. in, in a flea market in Bay Roberts, and we were talking about the power of storytelling. Absolutely. And you were telling me a story about the Duke of Connaught's uh, tree. Oh, that that's fabulous. And um, again, it's one of those things. Uh, I mean, gosh, how much yeah. I wish I, I wish, I mean, I could spin something, but I, I, I wish I could spin something as good as this because I don't have to. It's true. And, uh, um, yeah, so there was this lady. Her name was uh, Victoria Badcock, and she was a force of nature. I um, met Miss Badcock when she was 99. And, uh, again, a little shout-out to the university. They, they had a, um, a, a pinning ceremony for people who had uh, graduated from Memorial 50 years, at least 50 years earlier. And so she was there at this, and she was... Um, just lovely, lovely, lovely person. And somebody suggested to me, you know, go have a chat with her. So I went to visit her in her old age home over at St. Luke's a number of years ago. And she had a bucket list, you know. And everybody's got a bucket list, but at 99, <laughs> 99 yeah, yeah, you know, you're pretty much, <laughs> I got it all done now or, you know, or that's it or I'm, I'm not doing anything else, right? <laughs> yeah. But she never had that attitude. Her, yeah. her thing was, I got a bucket list. And a bucket list is, is no good it was still good, but it's not as good unless you share it. Because at 99, you don't have the mobility and the resources to get out and just go about your business and book a flight to do something. You you need help to to make this happen. So her, she just told anybody who would listen, and she was a fabulous force of nature. So she would tell people who would listen about her bucket list things she wanted to do. And one of them was she wanted to fly in a helicopter. And uh, she she told me herself she said, I would love to have parachuted. Uh, she said, but my hips are too bad now. I can't do it right. So other than that, I go right. But she she figured you know flying in a helicopter was the next best thing. So somebody in the old age home heard about this, had a connection with a helicopter company. I believe it was Cougar. They took her and her family uh, out for a ride in a helicopter. And she'd get up in the helicopter and she'd say, you know, they f- they figured they had me for five minutes or something like that, and they'd take me for a spin and that'd be it. And they told me I had a full hour. And they said, took me around St. John's, and they said, now, Mrs. Badcock, do you want to go back in? She said, we got more time. So we got a full hour. She said, Cape Spear. And when we went there, she said, he said, we got more time. She said, renews. <laughs> so Aquafort, she had relatives there. Anyway, her stories went on like this, and um, I'll get to the Kanatri in a second, I promise. <laughs> but i got to tell you this. One, one story leads to another story. Know, That's the danger of stories. It, it, well, yeah. it is. It is. But this is fun because it's all about her. So this is this will kind of illustrate her her enthusiasm, her sense of humor. Um, she also wanted to go out in what she called an escape boat. She wanted to go see whales. And again, she, she, she shared her story. That's the whole point. She shared her story with somebody who could make this happen. And, uh, you know, and she was so charming that people wanted to make these things happen for her bucket list. Um, so some companies said, boy, we'll take you out. Now, Mr. Badcock, this great big Zodiac, uh, a rib, actually, a rigid hull inflatable boat. Mm-hmm. So it could accommodate a lot more than just Mrs. Badcock and her, her companions or guardians or whatever, um, or, or family members. And they decided that anybody in the old age home who was, you know, relatively good shape, they could come along for the ride. And Mrs. Badcock said, you know, they put me in a big astronaut suit. I said, an astronaut suit? She said, one of them big orange, oh yes, a survival <laughs> suit, right? And she said, you know, they wanted me to sit down in the back by the engine where it was nice and dry. And I was getting to measure her. I said, now Mrs. Badcock, did you? She said, indeed I didn't. I went right up in the front where the waves were breaking on me. So I was going like, free at last, free at last. <laughs> she must be channeling Martin Luther King or something, right? But, uh, Anyway, she's like, and I almost reached down and touched the whale. And she was so beautiful. And she was, you know, just, it was just joyful to hear. And she said, you know, I said, you really like this? She said, there was only one problem. I said, what's that? She said, there was this fellow in the boat with us. And she said, he was only a young man. He was only 80. Only 80. And she said, his name was Walter. And he started to take crying, got afraid. 
And I said, well, what'd you do? I said, well, I knew if he didn't knock it off, we'd have to go in. So I asked him to put me down by him. So I went in and I leaned in and I was smiling at him. And I told him, I said, and I thought I was comforting him. And I said to him, Walter, Walter, shut up. If you don't shut up, I'll throw you at the boat. <laughs> <laughs> and she said, that cured him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, what really impressed me with Mrs. Badcock was, was telling those stories and the interludes. Um, her family owned the land um, that would eventually become the south side of Barring Park. Her maiden name was LeMessurier. And she, her mother was invited to the opening of the park. It was much simpler times. It was in uh, 1914. So Victoria was a three-month-old baby. And um, Victoria added completely unnecessarily, but I love that she said, now I don't remember much about that. She said, my mother told me. I was like, <laughs> fair enough. Fair yeah. enough. Yeah. Fair enough. Three months old, you can be forgiven, right? Yeah. She said, anyway, uh, when... When the my mom got there, she got there with the baby carriage. It was too much uh, of a crowd to get through, so she parked me here by this little tree that was just planted in the ground. She went over here to speeches, and all of a sudden the crowd parted. Out comes Sir Edgar Bowing and uh, the royal prince, the Duke of Connaught, and they came right over to where Victoria was in the baby carriage. The mother, for royal protocol, wasn't allowed to come back and approach the prince without being uninvited, but apparently the prince tapped Victoria on the head or laid his hand on her head and pronounced said she was a lovely baby and did the ceremonial planting. And Victoria said, every year of my life since, that tree is my tree. And she said, I go back to the park to see that tree. And she said, a lot of times I get my picture taken when you said, you know, I didn't have the heart to tell her. I knew exactly what she was talking about. It, was the, it became the famous Connaught tree. Um, it grew probably over 40 feet high and, and lasted almost a century. And I didn't... It grieved me a little bit because I knew it had been destroyed in Hurricane Igor. There were yeah. thousands of trees knocked down in, in the city. And um, I um, I wasn't sure if she'd been back, since, you know, how long she'd been in the home, and I was going to let it go. But she was smarter than that. She said, you know, that tree, she said, the tree is gone. It got knocked down in the big wind in the hurricane. And uh, she said, the tree's gone, but I'm still <laughs> I'm here. Still here. Yeah. I thought, what a great line. So I kept that, and I followed that away in the back of my little uh, Rolodex in, the, in your head. And... Uh, I happened to be at an event um, at City Hall in December of, um, of um, uh, 2014, and uh, I was happened to be down there. And uh, I looked around. I was taking some pictures for the uh, for the for the Christmas parade. So I was down for the awards and just doing a little volunteer thing with that, which was lovely and a great event. And uh, hats off to the DDC and all the people who organize these things, and the City of St. John's. But behind the Christmas tree, somebody had poked away this beautiful new podium. And me and a gorgeous brass plaque on this podium, you know. And you don't put big brass plaques on podiums for nothing. Like, you know, so it was something unusual about it. So I kind of poke my head in while I'm waiting for the next people to come up. And I, I see it and I was like, this podium was made from the wood of the Connaught tree. And I was like, wow, like finger of God coming out a little bit. Like, wow, okay, how do I get this podium out of here and get it up to see Mrs. Badcock? That couldn't happen uh, easily. But I put out some feelers and some folks in the woodworking community said, you know, that was probably made locally. So uh, one of the uh, wood, wood turners, a gentleman named Dr. Lawrence Bauer, uh, he contacted some friends. They, long story short, to encapsulate this a little bit, they provided some of the wood. He got a small piece of it. He had one piece. He turned a plate out of this, a little symbolic plate of this wood. He gave it to me to give to Mrs. Badcock. So I went over and made arrangements with the old age home and with um, with uh, her her family, uh, you know, 
it's, it's December 17th, it's close to Christmas. Would you mind if I drop over with a little bit of this wood as a gift for Mrs. Badcock? You know, she came into the world with this tree, with this famous canard tree, and uh, maybe she might get a kick, a moral kick out of seeing it, getting get a piece of it. We, uh, I brought it into her, she opened it up, and she got, she went, oh my, she said, my old friend, where did you get her again? I said, Mrs. Badcock, how do you, do you know what that is? She said, it's a piece of my tree. And I said, how do you know that, man? She said, uh, it's got to be my tree. It's got a V on it for Victoria. And uh, through an accident, there's a bark inclusion on the, on the one piece of wood, um, two diagonal slashes. They look like a, on the light wood, they look like a dark V. Um, so I looked around and I said, uh, she said, you made my Christmas. And I said, I, got, I think that's something in my honest. <laughs> you made my Christmas and probably every Christmas I'll ever have. Um, so she was tickled pink with it. Away she went. Because she had shared that story, I knew I recognized it as being wood from her tree. It could have been anybody who saw it, but the fact that it just happened to be me, it was just a luck of the draw. I shared that story with the other people, and they made this all happen. I got the call on, that was December 17th, I got the call on December 26th, Boxing Day, when we were out with the Wren, uh, she passed away. Mm-hmm. So I couldn't make her funeral, but when I came back to St. John's, I contacted her family. And um, she thought so much of the wood and of the story and the connection and being brought together after a century that they buried her with it. So she came into the world with that tree and she went out with that tree. And that's really the story of Victoria and the wood and the power of stories. Well, that's a good place to end, Absolutely. I think. And if people want to find more about you, they can go to uh, your you got a website? Yeah, just dennisflynn.ca. I've got a couple of books there or they can, um, you know, find establishments, maybe down home somewhere they can find some of the books I've done. Yeah. Thanks for coming in. Thank you so much. Pleasure. I'm Dale Jarvis. You've been listening to Living Heritage, a production of CHMR Radio 93.5 in collaboration with the Intangible Cultural Heritage Office of the Heritage Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador. You can find us online at ichblog.ca or on iTunes. Our production assistant is Stephanie Machikian. We would love to know what you think of the show. You can leave us a comment on the Living Heritage Podcast Facebook page or tweet us at ich underscore nl. Thanks for listening. <laughs>